today. Last December, I preached a series of sermons that I called The Spirit of Christmas. And in those sermons throughout the month of December, we examined what the Bible has to say about the role played by the Holy Spirit in the birth of Jesus. I remember reminding the congregation that I've always felt that the nativity scenes that we put on display are missing a character. We have the shepherds and the wise men and Mary and Joseph and Jesus and sometimes an angel. But the Bible is very clear that the Holy Spirit himself was very active and very involved in that entire phenomenon. And I think he sometimes gets overlooked. So we did our best to correct that wrong last December when we talked about the spirit of Christmas. A couple of months ago, I had what I thought was a grand idea at the time. I thought, you know what, this Easter, we're going to reboot that series. But instead of doing the spirit of Christmas, we're going to do the spirit of Easter. Come on now, isn't that the best idea you've ever heard? I sure thought so. Because immediately several passages came to my mind, scriptures that I knew I could preach that talk about the role that the Holy Spirit uniquely played in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we'll do. I'll just block out three Sundays. We'll go through the entire Holy Week season. We're going to do the Spirit of Easter. Done. So here we are today on Sunday number one, which of course on our calendars marks the beginning of the Easter season, the beginning of Holy Week. And on Sunday one here, we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We often call it Palm Sunday. You're probably familiar with the story, but let me just review it very, very quickly. The Bible tells us that Jesus had conducted most of his ministry in the countryside, kind of away from the city of Jerusalem. But as time went on, we see him moving closer and closer to the city of Jerusalem itself. And on this particular year, he and his disciples made the decision to celebrate the Passover holiday in Jerusalem itself. Now, celebrating Passover in Jerusalem is a little bit like celebrating New Year's Eve in Times Square. Jerusalem would have been swollen with tourists and travelers and pilgrims from all over. This was the place to be. Jerusalem is ground zero for Passover. So Jesus and his disciples are saying, we're going to go and we're going to be part of the crowds there. And so the Bible tells us that a few days prior to the beginning of Passover, Jesus and his disciples had made their way as close as a small town just kind of on a hillside, just on the outskirts of the city. When they arrive there, Jesus tells two of his disciples to go to the next village over and borrow a donkey's colt so that he could ride on it. So they get the colt and Jesus sits on the colt and then the group begins to slowly descend this mountainside road as they make their way towards the city gate. And as they ride, they're passing other pilgrims who are on the same journey. They're passing people who just happen to be there on the roadside doing whatever they're doing at that day. And the observers begin to recognize Jesus. He had some fame, of course, through the years of ministry he had at this time. And they see Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And so they begin to cheer and they begin to celebrate The people on the roadside begin to to set their coats, take their cloaks off and and set them on the ground as he passed by and cut branches from the palm trees and wave them and set them down on the road. That sounds weird to us, 
but it was actually a traditional welcome in that culture for a, 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 an important person. It would be kind of like us saying, well, let's roll out the red carpet as so-and-so arrives. So they're doing this. And, and as Jesus and his disciples go by and as the folks are cheering, they're also singing traditional Passover songs, just like we have Christmas carols. They had songs that were traditionally reserved for the Passover holiday. Some of those songs are recorded for us in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. There's one song that is particularly cited in, in the New Testament here. We know that they were singing from Psalm 118. If you wanna go back and look, you could read the words, but Psalm 118 is the one that gives us the line that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this was one of the, you could call it Passover carols that they would have been singing in preparation for the holiday anyhow. And then as they're singing it, they see Jesus coming. And so you can imagine them getting more and more excited and, and, and singing it louder and louder. And then they begin to celebrate by shouting out, Look, Lord, save us, Lord, save us, which in ancient Hebrew is pronounced Hosanna, Hosanna. And so that's where we get the Palm Sunday story. Now, the Bible, as you may know, includes four different storytellers who wrote about Jesus's life. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, and there's John. And all four of those authors give us an account of Palm Sunday. Some give us more details, some give us less, but all four of them refer to it at some level. So a few weeks ago, as I said, okay, it's time to roll up my sleeves and get into the spirit of Easter here. And we're gonna start with Palm Sunday. I opened my Bible to search for the text that I really wanted to use. And I said, I'm gonna read through these Palm Sunday accounts from the gospels. And I'm going to find what they say about how the Holy Spirit was involved in all of this. And I'm gonna preach an awesome sermon. That's what I said. So I, I went to the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, the Palm Sunday account in Matthew comes in Matthew chapter 21, and I read it through, keeping my eyes peeled for the references to the Holy Spirit, and I found nothing. Undaunted, though, because there's three more Gospels to go, I turned a few pages and I went to the Gospel of Mark, who tells his version of the Palm Sunday story in Mark chapter 11, and I read through it. Nada. Nothing. I started to get a little nervous. But then I remembered that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to use a lot of the same language to tell their stories. They tend to tell their stories in a very similar way. We actually think they kind of collaborated a little bit on, on their composition work of, of the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life. So I thought, I'm going to skip over Luke because it's probably very similar to what Matthew and Mark told. I'm going to go to John. John's different. He has a way of telling us the story from a different vantage point with this, just a different perspective. So I turn to John. He tells his Palm Sunday story in John chapter 12, eager with anticipation. Surely John is going to tell us how the Holy Spirit was involved with the triumphal entry of Jesus. No, no. It was then that I thought maybe this wasn't the best idea I've ever had. But I had skipped Luke. 
And I really shouldn't have skipped Luke because Luke is probably where I should have started. If only I had been thinking, I would have started in Luke. The reason is that of the four storytellers, the four gospel authors, Luke is the one who's most excited about the Holy Spirit. He talks the most about the Holy Spirit. Many of our classic passages about the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus come from the gospel of Luke. If only I had been thinking. If you're looking for a reference to the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, Luke is where I should have started. And so I turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke, don't fail me now. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Not even a mention of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I was willing to go for spirit of God or the breath of heaven. I mean, you know, like the bar was really, really low, but there's nothing. But then I notice that there is one element of the story that Luke tells us that none of the other three guys tell us. And I began to read and reread it, and I'm going to read it for you today because I think it's worth mentioning. So this comes from Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. It says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, can you, can you picture it the way we described it? The crowds cheering and singing and laying their cloaks down and all of this celebration going on. Jesus says as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, I'm sorry, Luke says that, he wept. He wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Wow. I mean, can you, again, just picture this in your mind. They're celebrating that Jesus is arriving and he's weeping because he's saying you don't even get it. And everything that you think you're celebrating is not going to go the way you thought it was going to go. Everything that you thought was going to be victory is going to be defeat. And the reason is because you don't even understand what's happening right now. Apparently the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem wasn't entirely a joyous celebration. There came this moment as he approached when Jesus was overcome with emotion to the point of weeping. Can you alter that image in your mind now? Can you now imagine the busy crowds cheering and singing, rushing to catch a glimpse or throw another palm branch? And perhaps they don't even notice the tears in his eyes. And why is Jesus weeping? Because he knows that their celebration is misplaced. That's always been one of the difficulties of Palm Sunday. Can I make another confession to you? I've never really enjoyed preaching about it because it's a little bit, well, it's a lot difficult. Celebrating Jesus is a good thing. 
proclaiming him as the king who's coming and welcoming him and entering, uh, welcoming him into our hearts just as they welcomed him into the city that day. That's it's not just a good thing. It's actually theologically correct. Like all of this is true. We can say harumph, harumph as we read it. This is right. This is what we believe in at first glance. It seems like this holiday ought to be one of the bright spots on the Christian's calendar. But here's the thing. You and I know the rest of the story don't we? We already made the announcement that on Friday we're going to have a Good Friday service. We know that the crowds aren't going to be cheering on Friday the way they were cheering on Sunday. They're going to be chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Reminds me of an article I read about a month ago, an article about celebrities whose public image had plummeted the most quickly. Who are the celebrities that we used to love, but now we despise? It named people like Ellen DeGeneres, who the world thought was the kindest, nicest, most fun woman, until we found out about how she had been treating her employees. Named Lance Armstrong, who was an athlete and the ultimate American hero, winner of multiple Tour de France's, until we found out just how badly he had been cheating. Referenced Bill Cosby, who wasn't just the great American comedian, but he was a champion for for racial rights and for education and all sorts of wonderful things until we found out about the history of abuse. There are certainly Christian public figures that we could add to that list. Bill Hybels, Mark Driscoll, Ravi Zacharias. Think about these people who were once so, so popular, and then it feels like almost overnight become despised by the world. Jesus has got them all beat. (laughs) He's got every one of those people beat because none of them was so popular that the general public wanted to make them king. And none of them was so hated that the government had to have them executed just to avoid a riot. But Jesus had both of those, and he had them in one week's time. Yay, Jesus! (laughs) So when we read the Palm Sunday stories, all the celebrations ring a bit hollow. Something's missing. Something's missing. These people are cheering and celebrating and creating an uproar of joy because they think they know what's going on, but they really don't. And that reminds me of the fact that some of Jesus's biggest fans don't know who he really is. I'm going to say that one more time. Some of Jesus's biggest fans don't know who he really is. Jesus has quite a reputation, doesn't he? And for the most part, it's a good one. There are all kinds of surveys available to us indicating that the majority of Americans view Jesus himself in a positive light. And I got to say, my experiences tend to confirm that. They tend to be pretty consistent with that. Jesus has a lot of fans in our world. In fact, one of the most common complaints I hear from people about Christians is that Christians don't act very much like Jesus acted. And let's acknowledge that too many times they have a point. They have a point. But there are plenty of other times when I hear people, Christian and non-Christian, make a comment about Jesus, and their comments make me wonder how well they know the one they're talking about. It's subtle, but 
Maybe you've heard it too. Somebody says, oh, I don't think Jesus would judge me. But the Bible refers to Jesus as the righteous judge. Somebody says, well, I think Jesus would want me to have this. But Jesus consistently extols the virtue of poverty and he emphasizes the importance of, of sacrifice. Somebody say, well, I don't think Jesus would want me to suffer. But what did Jesus say? He said, in the world, you will have trouble. And then he looked at his followers and said, so pick up a cross and follow me. And before long, we've invented this image of Jesus in our minds and we're really, really big fans. But the image doesn't match the real Jesus. The image is a complicated compilation of our own preferences and expectations. It reminds me of the old quote that sometimes has been attributed to Mark Twain. He said, God created man in his own image and man being a gentleman returned the favor. Is the Jesus we cheer for the real Jesus or is he an image that we've created in our own minds? Now, the irony, of course, on, on this first Palm Sunday is that most of the people doing the cheering could have known the difference. Ah, maybe we should say should have known the difference. You see, 500 years earlier, there was a young prophet by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote about that day and that journey toward Jerusalem. His Writing is from Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. 500 years before Palm Sunday, Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, because see, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. And his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah goes on to describe this king coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt. He describes him as a king who's going to destroy weapons. A king who's going to bring peace and, and unite a people that had been divided in their sinfulness. This is not a king who's coming to lead a rebellion. This is not a king who's coming to muster an army or overthrow a government. Now, for most of us, myself included, Zechariah chapter 9 is a relatively obscure piece of Old Testament scripture. I'd love to try and impress you today, but I had to look it up too. You know, this is a relatively obscure passage in the minor prophets of the Old Testament, but it wasn't to the people who were along the roadside that day, at least it shouldn't have been, they had been studying it along with the rest of their sacred texts for generations. Yeah, some of Jesus' biggest fans don't know who he really is, despite having heard the truth. Did you ever run into a celebrity in real life but fail to recognize them? And it's odd. I've had the phenomenon a couple of times. People that we see all the time on, on TV or in film, but they somehow manage to escape our perception when they're not in the context that we expect them to be. You know what I mean? 
You know, you run into Steve Carell, but he's not selling paper in Scranton, and so somehow it doesn't compute. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I've never run into Steve Carell, but several years ago, when Jessica was a baby, Sue and I and Jessica went and spent the weekend in Lake Geneva, and we were walking down the streets of downtown Lake Geneva. There was a family behind us pushing a stroller, and every time the guy spoke, I was thinking, I know that voice. I know that voice. Who is it? Who is it? And they just happened to be going the same way we were going. They followed us uh, for a block or so. And I'm thinking, is this somebody from church? Is this somebody that I used to go to school with? I know the voice. I turned around and couldn't, couldn't recognize it, but I knew, I knew, I knew that voice. And then suddenly it dawned on me. He was the host of the radio show I listened to every afternoon when I drove home from work. <laughs> I turned around and called him by name, but it, I just, I, it took me so long to figure it out because I'm used to hearing that voice in my car on Ogden Avenue. I'm not used to hearing that voice walking down the streets in Lake Geneva pushing a baby stroller. Sometimes we don't quite place it when it's out of the context we expect. The people outside Jerusalem, they had heard the truth. They knew what to look for in a savior. They were literally in the midst of a religious festival celebrating that very expectation that someday God was going to save them. But they failed to recognize him when he came because he wasn't in the context that they expected him to be. Let me reread what Luke tells us Jesus said that day. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. It reminds me of what the Apostle John would later write about Jesus. He said, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. It's like John was saying they knew what they were looking for and when he finally showed up, they looked right through him. They just completely missed the most important one. I've been binging the West Wing lately, and I'm really, really enjoying it. I didn't watch it when it was on TV live years and years ago, but I've been binging it lately, and I'm hooked. The West Wing, if you're not familiar, is this drama about the president and his top aides and the government and all of these things. And it's really, really, I think, a very interesting take on what American government might look like. There's one particular episode where the White House aides are all busy planning the details for an important upcoming meeting. And their job is to plan the seating chart. And there's going to be foreign dignitaries and diplomats and all sorts of people involved. So it's a very, very complicated process because there are so many details that need to be taken into consideration. It's difficult for them to find a seating arrangement that will reconcile all the minutia of the decorum that they have to keep in mind for this meeting. And so they keep on trying to put a seating chart together. No, nope, no, nope, that won't work. And they have to start over and they have to start over and they have to do it again and again and again. And after several failed attempts, they finally come up with a seating arrangement and they all kind of look at it. Are we good? Are we good? I think we've got it. 
I think we've got it. They finally got it and they review it time and time and time again to make sure we really, we've accounted for everything. We've got it. This is going to work. And they're just about to submit it when one of them says, guys, 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 guys. We forgot the president. (laughs) I worry that many in our world today have tried to make religion or spirituality into a seating chart. That we've been careful to arrange important things like love and and goodness and generosity in just the right place. And we've tried to make sure that bad things like jealousy and hatred and injustice, things like that have no seat at the table. And we've organized and reorganized the chairs again and again and again until finally we've arranged a layout that looks pretty good to us. And we hold it up and we call it faith or we call it spirituality or we call it religion, but we've forgotten Jesus. We've forgotten that what we set out to do in the first place was to set up a banquet worthy of the king. And we've gotten so focused on the celebration that we've neglected or we've ignored, or maybe we just failed to recognize the one that we came to celebrate in the first place. So how can we avoid that? How can we avoid being like the crowds outside of Jerusalem that day that thought they knew the one that they were cheering for, but clearly didn't understand who he really was? Not surprisingly, Jesus himself would be the one to give us the answer, and he gives us the answer just a few days later. John chapter 15, verse 26, and I've chosen the Good News translation here because I think it does a great job of highlighting exactly what I believe Jesus was trying to communicate. He says to his followers, the helper will come. The spirit. Oh, there it is. (laughs) The spirit who reveals the truth about God and who comes from the father and he will speak about me. He will speak about me. The Holy Spirit will speak about me. When I first met Sue and we went out on our first couple of dates, I wanted to know everything I could learn about her. But I knew that it was probably a bad idea to ask her to fill out a form or submit to an interview. (laughs) Um, But we did have a, a friend in common. And so I sat down with a friend of hers on a couple of different occasions and said, tell me what you can. Tell me what you can about this, this girl. And her friend loved to talk her up. She was excited that we had connected. And so she would tell me, oh, she's great. And she's this and she's that. And she's the other thing. She would tell me all of these good things about her. And that was helpful for me in the early days of that relationship to learn more about Sue from somebody who knew her well and liked to talk about her. I didn't have to twist anybody's arm. Each of us who call ourselves Christians We're in a new relationship with Jesus. Now, you might have been a Christian your entire life. Some of us have a a lot of miles on that odometer in terms of the years that we follow Jesus. But I would argue that even so, it's still a new relationship in the sense that there's so much more about him than we don't know than there is that we do know. The Bible puts it this way. In this life, we can only see kind of through a, a dim mirror. One day we'll see in full. The good news for you in your new relationship with Jesus today 
is that there is someone who knows Jesus well and who likes to talk about him. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the words of the Bible, which is why reading and trusting the Bible is such an essential component in learning about Jesus. The Holy Spirit makes his home among the community of believers, which is why spending time in worship and in fellowship, in community with one another, like we do in a church service, is such an essential component in developing a relationship with Jesus. The point is, if we train ourselves to cultivate a listening ear to what the Spirit has to say, we're a lot less likely to miss out on what Jesus is actually doing. Fans of Jesus don't necessarily do that. They're prone to misunderstand or to overlook the work and the intent of Jesus. But those who have committed themselves to following him according to his design, well, they have a leg up on the mere fan. And the difference is the Holy Spirit. The difference is the Holy Spirit. So back to where I started today. It's not a coincidence that I couldn't find a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in the Palm Sunday narratives. And it's not a coincidence that the whole Palm Sunday story leaves us a little bit queasy because, as I said earlier, something's missing, and that something is the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Holy Spirit took the day off. That would be heresy. You'd have to take me out back and burn me at the stake, right? I'm not suggesting that the Holy Spirit was somehow unaware of what Jesus was up to that day. I don't mean to imply that he was busy somewhere else in the universe or he was uninterested in what was going on in Jerusalem, that it caught him by surprise or anything like that. What I am saying is that the people along the roadside failed to listen to what the Holy Spirit through the words of ancient scripture, had already told them about that day. They failed to recognize Jesus for who he had always been. And you and I need to be careful not to make the same mistake. You see, Jesus never called anyone to be a fan. He only ever called followers. And the call of Jesus that goes forth every time the word of God is proclaimed is never come be a fan of Jesus, come cheer him on, come think he's cool, come celebrate this or celebrate that. That's, that's not the gospel. Take up your cross and follow me. It's not the call for a fan. It's the call for a follower. Followers need to listen. If they don't, they risk getting confused and lost. See, fans can cheer as loud as they want. They don't even need to hear what the hero is saying. Followers need to trust, even when the way forward doesn't make sense. Especially when the way forward doesn't make sense. Or when it seems more difficult than we want it to be. Fans can keep very, very comfortable on the roadside as the hero moves along to rougher terrain. Followers need to watch very, very closely so that they know exactly how to mimic the footsteps of the one that they're following. But fans, they can come and go as the action ebbs and flows. Followers need to learn to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Easter. And that's what we want to do today. Would you pray with me to that end?
Holy Spirit, we want to tune our ears to what you are saying. We want to learn to recognize the distinctive cadence of your voice as we encounter it through the written word of God and as we encounter it through the many ways that the word of God tells us we still hear it in our lives and in our communities of faith today. We don't want to be like I was that day walking down the block thinking, now where have I heard that voice before? No, God, teach your followers to know immediately. That's our desire. And Lord, I confess that in too many instances, I, I'm sure we, have chosen a spot of fandom where it's just a little bit more comfortable to stand on the side of the road and cheer. There he goes, there he goes, there he goes. And ignore the follow me request. It's especially difficult for those of us who have read the rest of this story because we know where he was going that day. So Lord, I ask that you would help us to not be fans but to be followers. To be so enraptured by the voice of the Spirit that we can't help but recognize the face of Jesus as we see him, as we encounter him. I pray, Lord, that you would develop within us a passion and a hunger. Because we know, (laughs) we know that when we hunger for you, you fill us up. So stir up that hunger, we ask. We confess our complacency. We confess our idol of of comfort. Father, I pray that whatever image we have in our minds of what Jesus is like, Lord, that we would set that aside in deference to the truth. An image, even if it's one we call Jesus, is still a graven image if it's of our own making. Lord, we want to serve the true Jesus. And so we ask you to help us with that. We pray, Lord, that as we do so, you would raise up a community of followers, a community of disciples, a community of the faithful who would go forth in the strength and the knowledge and the assuredness that we go in the grace of God. And Lord, that your goodness and your mercy and your blessing would follow us all the days of our life. We thank you for that today. Challenge us when we need to be challenged. Encourage us when we need to be encouraged. And Lord, bless us always, we ask. As we're about to go, we ask simply that you would bless our fellowship time next, the food that we're about to eat together, and the time that we have to share one with another. That it would be a good time, but Lord, that it would be a God time as well. We ask all of these things in the strong name of our Savior. His name is Jesus. And everyone says, Amen. 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 May God's blessing be upon you. You can find your way to the gym just that way. And tell them we're ready to eat.